food delivery apps. They've become all the rage, and one reason why is because we can just sit there at home and wait for our favorite food to be delivered straight to our front door. But have you ever stopped to ask, can I really trust the delivery driver who is delivering my food? According to a recent survey, which was commissioned and conducted by U.S. Foods, 28% of the delivery workers who were surveyed, they confessed to sampling the food that they were hired to deliver. That's right, one-fourth of the delivery drivers who work for Uber Eats and Grubhub and DoorDash, they admitted to nibbling on your dinner before they drop it off at your door. And that kind of explains the half-eaten pizza I got delivered to my house the other day. Now, in light of this survey, I personally find it difficult to trust these app-based delivery services. And one reason why is because you just don't really know. Seems like it's a gamble, like, you know, one out of four are going to be taste-testing your food. You don't really know if the driver that's bringing your food is completely delivering everything that they were supposed to deliver. Now, if this survey is bumming you out, if it's causing you to distrust those who work in this delivery industry, then I'd like to give you some hope this morning. And I hope that you don't think this is too much of a stretch, but, but I do know one deliver, deliverer that we can completely trust. I do know one deliverer who always delivers everything that he's promised to deliver. And this is great news because the deliverer that I'm talking about has promised to deliver us from the trials and troubles of this world and the next. Here in our text today, we find Peter, he's assuring the hearts of his audience by helping us to see that Jesus is the deliverer. He is the divine deliverer who's able to make good on all of his promises. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the Lord is able to deliver us from temptation. Secondly, we'll learn that the Lord is able to deliver us from condemnation. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the Lord is able to deliver us from accusation. With this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. Here we find the Apostle Peter. He's reminding his readers about the divine deliverance that the Lord has promised to those who trust in him. And as you make your way to the second chapter of 2 Peter, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll help you to remember that we actually find ourselves in a section of Scripture which is actually focused on the way that the Lord is able to deliver those who trust in him. Remember, it was two weeks ago when we uh, began to consider the days when the Lord saved Noah and his family. Remember, we learned about the way the Lord delivered them from the devastating deluge which was poured out upon this ungodly world. And then in our study last week, we learned about that day when Lot was delivered from the fires that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And now here in our study today, we're going to consider the point that Peter was building up to. Well, we're going to consider what, what he was driving towards as he reminds us about Noah and Lot. You see, Peter wasn't just presenting us with a history lesson from the book of Genesis. Instead, he had a specific purpose when he decided to remind the original recipients of this epistle about the way in which the Lord delivered Noah and then delivered Lot from the righteous wrath of God. With this as the focus, let's 
pick up our study of 2 Peter chapter 2. I want to back up and just take in the full context, which begins back at verse 4. If you would look with me there at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where Peter declares, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Here in these verses we find Peter, he's comparing the deliverance of Noah and the deliverance of Lot to the divine deliverance that the Lord has promised to provide for those who trust in the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word deliver, which is found there in the middle of verse 9, it's translated from a Greek word, which refers to the way that a person rushes to rescue those who need to be saved. The deliverer is a rescuer. And, and listen, this is the same Greek word that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where he assures his audience that Jesus is the one who is able to deliver us from the wrath to come. Now, in order to better understand the way that the Lord provides us with divine deliverance, let's look at, uh, again there at 2 Peter 2, verse 9. Here again, Peter tells us that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Now, just to be clear, Peter wasn't talking about the 70s soul sensation who gave us timeless classics like My Girl and Ball of Confusion. We're not talking about those temptations. No, the temptations that Peter was referring to are those sinful seductions that lead us away from the Lord. Temptations are the alluring enticements that cause us to wander away from the narrow path of righteousness. And while it's true that many of our temptations arise within the imaginations of the immaterial mind, it's also true that we all face the temptation to sin whenever we're given the opportunity to carry out those carnal cravings. For example, uh, the person who struggles with the temptation to steal, well, uh, they, they face that temptation to, to engage in thievery whenever they see something of value that's easy to take for themselves. Many thieves are opportunists, you know, who when they see something that they can just take and not get caught, they'll take it. The liar faces the temptation to sin every time they find it too difficult to tell the truth because if they tell the truth, they're going to get in trouble and that's, that's too much. And so uh, the temptation to lie presents itself. The alcoholic faces the temptation to sin whenever they find themselves at a function with a completely open bar. Then there's the adulterer who faces the temptation to sin whenever they're given the opportunity to cheat on their spouse thinking that they won't get caught. 
To sum it up, we all have these carnal cravings that are kept hidden within the sinful imaginations of the immaterial mind, and you better believe that there's going to be times when we're tempted to fulfill those depraved desires, and we're going to be given those opportunities to carry out those carnal cravings. What do you do at that point of temptation? Well, as we consider those moments of temptation, we can rejoice in knowing that we have a Savior who knows how to deliver the godly out of every temptation. Not only that, but the Lord has also encouraged us to to pray, to pray and ask for help so that we can escape every temptation. In order to prove my point, if you would hold your place here in Peter's second epistle, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Let's turn to Matthew 6, and and you see it's in the sixth chapter of Matthew's gospel account where we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually teaching his disciples how to pray, and and it's important to understand that he wasn't giving us a prayer to repeat, like a vain repetition, but he's presenting us with a model prayer, an example of prayer. And here in this example of prayer, we see that our deliverer, is encouraging us to ask for his help so that we can overcome every temptation. I want to consider how Jesus puts it here in Matthew chapter 6. If you would, let's, let's look beginning there at verse 5. Here the Lord declares, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And notice, do not lead us into temptation But deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here in this model prayer, we find the Lord Jesus. He's encouraging every disciple uh, to take some time in our prayer life to ask for help. We need to ask for heavenly help so that we can receive the spiritual strength that we need. The strength that comes from our Savior, who alone can deliver us from every evil temptation. In order to further understand how important, important it is for us to ask for this kind of deliverance, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26. It's there where he declares, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit within the, the born-again believer is willing to walk in obedience with the Lord. The Spirit loves to walk in obedience with Jesus. But our fallen flesh is so weak. Please trust me when I tell you that our flesh is far too weak to overcome every temptation. Therefore, we need to wake up every day and and just humbly recognize that we need help. 
We need help and we need to prayerfully ask the Lord to deliver us from the evil one by leading us away from every temptation. And as we pray, I want to encourage you to remember a promise that Paul presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you would continue holding your place there in 2 Peter, let's turn in our Bibles now to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And as you make your way to 1 Corinthians 10, I want to point out that the weakness of our flesh will always lead us back into the temptations of sin. And so Paul here is helping the Christians in Corinth to understand that that we have a deliverer who will always provide us with a way to escape those temptations. I want to consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 12, here Paul declares, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will always make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. According to Paul, the Lord is the one who is able to deliver us from every temptation. And one way that he does this, it's by providing us with a way to escape the temptation. He always gives us an out. And he doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to manage with his strength. Sadly, there are many who are living in a delusional state of self-deception. And and it's the sort of self-deception that leads us to think that we've got the strength to stand. Which is why uh, Paul begins there in verse 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you have the strength to stand on your own... You need to take heed because you're headed for a fall. And and so often I've seen Christians who who gain the victory over some sin in their life, and now they think, oh, I've got this. This is no longer a struggle of mine because I haven't struggled with it for a month, because I haven't fallen into this temptation in, in six months. And so therefore, it's no longer an issue. Trust me when I tell you, it's still an issue. It's still an issue. And I'm here to tell you that sin is crouching at the door, just waiting for you to answer its call. Take heed if you think you're standing on your own strength, because it's the sort of foolish pride that will lead to a fall. Rather than living in a delusional state of self-deception that leads us to think that we've got the strength to stand, let's, let's instead humbly recognize that our flesh is weak. And it's too weak to continually deny the carnal cravings of our fallen flesh. We might gain one victory on one day and maybe another victory on the next. But how long before we stumble back into sin? Our flesh is too weak to deny the carnal cravings that we have. Therefore, wisdom would lead us to realize that we need to pray every day. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. From evil. We need to prayerfully seek help from the Lord each and every day because He is the one who is able to deliver us 
from every evil temptation. And not only is the Lord able to deliver us from every evil temptation, but the Lord is also able to deliver us from condemnation. And in order to explain what I mean, let's make our way back to 2 Peter chapter 2. Here we find Peter. He's reminding his readers about the condemnation which will eventually occur on the day of judgment. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me again at 2 Peter 2, I want to back up and begin again at verse 9. Here Peter declares, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Here in these verses we find Peter writing about the punishment that will be poured out on this event that we call the day of judgment. That word judgment found there at the end of verse 9. It's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to a judicial sentence resulting in the condemnation of those who have broken the law. But just to be clear, listen, Peter wasn't referring to the judicial judgment of an earthly judge. He's not talking about Judge Judy, you know, and, and, and enjoying her program. No, he's referring to a specific judgment. He's referring to the day of judgment when the righteous judge of heaven and earth will condemn the ungodly. In order to prove my point, we should consider something that Peter wrote in the very next chapter of this same epistle. If you would look with me there at 2 Peter chapter 3. I want to draw your attention to verse 7 because there in verse 7 Peter tells us that the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In this verse, we find Peter helping his audience to understand that the day of judgment begins on the day when the Lord destroys the universe with a consuming fire. On that day, the elements will melt with fervent heat as the Lord prepares a new universe, which is fit for his millennial reign. Not only that, but listen, the day of the Lord, which I believe begins at the, uh, the beginning of the millennial kingdom and culminates in the final judgment at, at the end of the millennial kingdom, uh, this, this will, uh, will take place when the Lord sets up his great white throne judgment and begins to pour out a perfect punishment on every unrepentant sinner. And in order to prove my point, uh, hold your place here in Peter's second epistle and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation. If you would, let's turn to the 20th chapter of Revelation. And as you make your way to Revelation 20, I want to take a moment to point out that the Lord is a just judge. He's a just judge. And as a just judge, he must pass a perfect sentence upon every single sin. He must provide a perfect punishment for every broken law. Because if he doesn't, then he's no longer a just judge. If the Lord fails to pass a perfect punishment on every single sin, then he fails to be completely just. And knowing that God cannot deny himself, he cannot be something other than what he is, then he must remain a just judge. Knowing that it's impossible for the Lord to be an unjust judge, well, there should be no doubt in our minds then that there is coming a day when the righteous judge of heaven and earth is going to settle every spiritual account by punishing every single sin. Let's consider how John describes this here in Revelation chapter 20. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 11, here John declares, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here in these verses we find John. He's presenting us with a prophetic picture of the day of judgment when every unrepentant unbeliever will eventually be cast into the lake of fire. And knowing that this is an everlasting punishment which can never be reversed, the Lord Jesus demonstrated the merciful kindness of our gracious God by warning the world about the unquenchable fires of hell. Jesus warned us over and over so that we might avoid ending up there in the lake of fire. For example, I'll remind you of the warning that Jesus presented in Mark chapter 9. It's there where he declares, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. According to Jesus, the condemnation that occurs for those who end up in the fires of hell, that condemnation never ends. The condemnation that occurs in hell will never end. It will continue forever. As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus referred to this as an everlasting fire. It's a fire that never ends. And in the same text, he tells us that this everlasting fire is an everlasting punishment. It's not just a fire for no reason. It's an everlasting fire that results in everlasting punishment. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus assured his audience that it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for those who reject the gospel of grace. And in light of these warnings, we should consider how the Lord has actually promised to reserve every unbeliever for this day of judgment when every unrepentant unbeliever is cast into the lake of fire. And with this as the focus, I want you to turn your attention back to 2 Peter chapter 2. If you would look with me once again at verse 9 where Peter declares the Lord knows how to deliver the, the godly out of temptations and notice to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now it's interesting to note that the word reserve there was translated from a Greek word which was used to describe the way in which a prison guard makes sure that the prisoners don't escape. What this means is that those who reject the gospel message of grace they will be incarcerated in some sort of spiritual prison from the day they die until the day of judgment. 
And then on the day of judgment, they'll be condemned for all of their wicked works as they're cast into the lake of fire. In order to further understand then the way that the Lord is reserving the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, I want to consider the situation that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 16. If you would, hold your place here in Peter's second epistle and let's make our way to the 16th chapter of Luke's gospel account. See, it's here in Luke 16 where we find the Lord Jesus. He's describing the day when this unnamed unbeliever dies. He, he, he was a wealthy man who died. And, and then according to Jesus, he immediately finds himself after death incarcerated and in torment in the fires of Hades. And according to Jesus here, we see that there was no way for that man to escape. With all this context in mind, look with me here at Luke chapter 16. I want to draw your attention to verse 23. Here Jesus declares, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented, and besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Here in these verses, we find the Lord. He's helping his audience to understand that those who end up there in, in Hades, they're going to be trapped there in torment until the day of judgment. And it's there in the fires of Hades where every unrepentant unbeliever is even now currently being kept until the end of the millennial reign when the day of judgment will culminate in the final judgment of every unrepentant sinner. Or as Peter puts it here in our text today, they are reserved under punishment for the day of judgment. In contrast to this, listen, the Lord is ready to deliver those who will simply repent and trust in him. In order to explain how the Lord delivers us, we should consider the way that, that the Lord has promised to deliver us from the condemnation of the law. And with this as the focus, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to Romans chapter 8. Continue holding your place there in 2 Peter. Let's make our way to the 8th chapter of Romans. And as you make your way to Romans 8, I want to take a moment to remind you that the law is the judicial standard by which the Lord condemns those who have broken the law. Sin is the breaking of the law, and the Lord then takes the law and uses it to judge the sins of those who are lawbreakers. And knowing that we're all lawbreakers, uh, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord wants to forgive those who will simply trust in him. And the reason why, and, and the, reason, uh, the way that he does this is by accomplishing the entire law on our behalf. Jesus came to accomplish the law on our behalf so that we could escape the condemnation of the law. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 8. Look with me there, beginning at verse 1, where Paul declares, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's assuring his audience about the way that Jesus has already provided us with the possibility of forgiveness. And, and yes, he's a just judge who must condemn every sin, and yet at the same time, he has condemned every sin in the flesh, and he did this through the cross. Jesus is a gracious Savior who received the condemnation that we deserve so that he can remain just while simultaneously becoming the justifier of those who trust in him. He received the condemnation that we deserve so that we could receive the forgiveness that we don't deserve. In this way, Jesus is able to deliver every sinner from the condemnation of the law. I like the way that Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where he declares, yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Simply put, God the Father sent his only begotten son to deliver us from the wrath to come. And while it's true that the unrepentant unbeliever is being reserved under punishment for the day of judgment where they will then be cast into the lake of fire forevermore, at the same time it's also true that those who will simply repent of their sins and trust in the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior Jesus, we will be delivered from the condemnation of the law. And as a result, every Christian can rejoice in knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus is our deliverer. And he delivers us from the wrath to come. We see then that the Lord is able to deliver us from every evil temptation, and not only that, but the Lord is also able to deliver us from judicial condemnation. Thirdly and finally, I want to consider how the Lord is also able to deliver us from every accusation. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to 2 Peter chapter 2, where we find Peter. He's now addressing the false accusations which were made by those who were walking according to the flesh. If you would look with me again, we'll pick up our study once again, beginning at verse 9. Here Peter tells us that the, the, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Here in these verses we find Peter. He's now drawing our attention back to those false teachers that he started writing about back in the beginning of this chapter. Remember, it was back in the beginning of this chapter where Peter first warned the first century church about the false teachers who, who were attempting to exploit the church with deceptive words. 
And so that's the context of this chapter. It's a warning about false teachers. And it's there in verse 10 where Peter assures us that those false teachers are actually walking according to the flesh. They're not walking in the Spirit. They're walking according to the flesh. This was the same group of deceivers that Jude wrote about when he warned the church about the ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we should notice again there in 2 Peter 2, verse 10. Here again, Peter describes those false teachers as being those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous and self-willed. Now, as we consider what Peter's saying here, we can see that the false teachers who were there in the first century, they were driven by sinful lusts. They were driven by the lust of uncleanness. And not only that, but they were also driven by, by prideful arrogance. They were driven by the prideful arrogance that leads a person to despise those who actually hold true positions of authority. In other words, those false teachers, they, they were so bold that they were willing to reject the clear instructions of the leaders that the Lord himself raised up. The Lord came and delivered us from sin and death by dying on the cross, but during his earthly ministry, Jesus raised up specific men, men that he identified as his apostles. And these false teachers despised those authorities. Chances are, as they were going from church to church teaching heresies, they probably found themselves at times receiving the righteous rebuke of apostles like Peter and Matthew. But rather than receiving the rebuke, they despised those who were in positions of authority. Now, the word authority there, it's found there in the middle of verse 10. It's translated from a Greek word which was used of this leadership position which was just below the king. So you'd have your king and then you'd have the, the level of leadership below the king and, and that's uh, what the word authority points to. It's possible that Peter's referring to angels here. That is one interpretation that, that some Bible teachers arrive at. They think that these authorities are angels. At the same time, though, it's, it's my position, as I've already pointed out, that I believe that this is referring to the apostles uh, who were in positions of leadership just below Jesus. I'll remind you that Peter was writing this letter at a time when most of the apostles were still alive. And knowing that these false teachers were already going around challenging the authoritative teachings of the apostles, it seems to me that Peter's probably referring to uh, the administration of, uh, of apostolic authority and, and the challenge that was being presented by those false teachers that he's basically describing in this chapter. And in order to further uh, make my point here, I want to look again there at verse 10, because here Peter describes those false teachers, again, as those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous and self-willed. And notice, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. That word dignitaries? Well, it's translated from the Greek word doxa, which is typically rendered glory or glorious. This word was used in reference to the glory of God. This is the same word that was used to, to describe the, the glory of Jesus when he was transfigured on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
this word uh, doxa or glory it was also used to describe the glory of the angels. Uh, but then we also see this word being used to describe the, the glory that was uh, on Moses' face after he came down from the mountain. It's possible that Peter here is referring to the, the glory of the angels because you know, angels are certainly spiritual beings who are preeminent in dignity. And so maybe these dignitaries are angels. But I, I would also point out that the Greek word rendered dignitaries here it's also used in reference to the glorious state that believers receive as we enter into heaven. When the believer enters into heaven, we are glorified. That's the word doxa. And so it's possible that Peter's actually referring to the way that these false teachers were basically uh, speaking ill and making reviling accusations against the dignitaries, the disciples and apostles who had already died and gone to heaven can't help but to wonder if Peter was referring to the Christian leaders who had already been martyred for their faith. And, and at the time when this book was being written, listen, there were at least three Christian martyrs on record. This included Stephen, who was stoned to death. This also included the apostle James. And then also James, the brother of Jesus, had already been martyred for his testimony at the time when Peter was writing this letter. Knowing that these men were key leaders in the first century church and knowing that they had already gone to be glorified there in heaven, it's possible that the false teachers were simply attempting to lead people astray by making up all sorts of false accusations about the Christian leaders who had already been glorified there in heaven. In order to further grasp why I personally believe that we're talking about the apostles here, I, I want to look again here at verse 10, because here Peter describes false teachers as those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, as we take a closer look at both of these verses, I, I should take a moment to point out that the dignitaries mentioned in verse 10, can't be the angels mentioned in verse 11. It's the, uh, the false teachers who are speaking evil of the dignitaries. And in contrast to this, the angels in heaven don't even dare bring these sorts of reviling accusations against the false teachers. Seems to me here that the false teachers there in the, in the first century, they were presumptuously assuming that they had the authority to make accusations against the leaders that the Lord chose for himself. And in contrast to their boldness, Peter's saying, look, the angels don't even do this. In making reviling accusations against false teachers who deserve the accusations. Simply put, the false teachers there in the first century were filled with so much foolish pride that they saw no problem rejecting the authority of the leaders that the Lord himself raised up. And in an attempt to promote themselves as being the true leaders of the church, uh, they were quick to make false accusations against the apostles of Jesus Christ. And this really should come as no surprise because remember, uh, the Lord has already warned us about the way that deceivers attempt to ruin the reputation of the saints by lodging false accusations. And in order to prove my point, let's turn in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 10. And as you make your way to the 10th chapter of Matthew's gospel account, I want to take a moment to remind you that the religious leaders of Israel, they were constantly accusing the servants of the Lord. 
They were constantly lodging accusations against them. For example, they accused Stephen of blasphemy before stoning him to death. They accused Paul of rejecting the law of Moses. Not only that, but they also accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, but he hadn't. I would also remind you about the way that the false prophets during the days of the Old Testament were constantly lodging false accusations against the true prophets that the Lord had sent. And in light of these examples, we must not fail to realize that the enemy uses the same tactics today. Listen, the the enemy isn't creating new strategies. He's got the same playbook. And at the top of the list on his playbook is false accusations against the, the servants of God. Let's consider how Jesus puts it here in Matthew chapter 5. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 10, here the Lord declares, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christian, listen. The enemy is doing everything that he can to destroy the work of the Lord. And and one way to destroy the work of the Lord is to come along and lodge false accusations against the leaders that the Lord has raised up. It's for, for this reason that the devil and his demons are happy to use their false teachers to go out and make all sorts of unfounded accusations against the leaders that the Lord has raised up. And it's sad to say that I've actually watched many, many Christians being led astray simply because they were too quick to believe every accusation which has been made against the leaders of the church. I've watched for years. Someone gets disgruntled and they start making false accusations and the people who listen hear it. The next thing you know, they start believing it and then they start spreading the same rumors and next thing you know, a church is divided. And knowing what kind of huge issue this would become, Paul presented Pastor Timothy with a biblical litmus test which enables us to examine every accusation in a biblical way. It's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul declares, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Not two or three people who heard the story. Not two or three people who read something on Facebook. But two or three witnesses, two or three people who saw what they claimed to have seen. Otherwise, you're not to receive the accusation against the pastor. Do not receive an accusation against an elder. That word elder is you know, synonymous with pastor. I'll suggest it just simply points to the leaders of the church. Do not receive an accusation against the leaders of the church except from two or three witnesses, people who saw it. Christian, listen, if someone comes to you and presents you with an accusation against a leader here at church, don't just believe them. And you know, they might be completely sincere and believe what they're telling you, but listen, they might be just telling you something that they heard from somebody else and didn't check out for themselves. Don't just believe the accusation. And and one reason why we have to guard ourselves against this is because the enemy has a game plan to destroy leaders with false accusations. Listen, if someone someone comes to you and says, yeah, leader so-and-so did such and such, Don't just believe them. What what you should do at that moment is tell the one making the accusation that you would like to meet with them and the person being accused. Let's just clear all this up. 
You're making an accusation against that leader. They're not here to defend themselves. I don't know what to believe about it. So why don't you, me, and them get together. We'll sit down and we'll talk about it and get to the bottom of this whole thing. This is the best plan rather than believing it and spreading it around and becoming a puppet of the enemy in that way. Listen, if you take this approach of taking every accusation, inviting that person to go sit down with that leader, listen to both sides of the story, in this way you can protect yourself from vicious rumors and gossip. At the same time, you're protecting your church by allowing the leader to defend themselves if there is a defense. And this is not to suggest that you know, every accusation is false. Sometimes accusations are true. And if the accusation is true, we want to get down to the bottom of it. We want to rebuke those who should be rebuked, and we want to justify those who did nothing wrong. Therefore, we shouldn't receive an accusation against a leader except from two or three witnesses, and then, if it's true, then let's get down to the bottom of it, and let's challenge those who did something wrong. But we have to remember that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he accuses us before God day and night. And you better believe that he's raising up false teachers to come in and make all kinds of false accusations against those who are in authority. And, and one reason why is because that's the fast track to destroying a church. The enemy is trying to destroy our church, and, and the, the enemy is trying to destroy our faith too with these false accusations. And with that being the case, I would remind you that we have a Savior who is able to deliver us from every accusation. If someone makes a false accusation against you, trust me, the Lord can deliver you from it. And as the enemy goes before God day and night accusing us, trust me when I tell you, we have a Savior who can deliver us from every accusation. This was precisely the point that John was making in Revelation chapter 12 where he assures his audience that we will overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. We don't have to worry about accusations. We don't have to worry about the accusers because we will overcome every accusation by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And with that, we can rejoice in knowing that we have a deliverer who will deliver us from every accusation. Now, as we begin to wrap up this message, I want to remind you that... Uh, Peter here was taking the story of Noah. He was taking the story of Lot. He was using this historic, these historic examples of, of a way to help us to see that the Lord truly is able to deliver us. The Lord delivered Lot. The Lord delivered Noah. And the Lord can deliver us. He's able to deliver us from the trials and the troubles of this world. And as we just sum up and recap the verses that we've been examining for the past three weeks, I just want you to rejoice in knowing that the Lord is able to deliver us from every evil temptation. Every day you're going to face temptations to sin. Pray and ask God to help you. And he will. He will deliver us from every evil temptation. And the Lord is able to deliver us from judicial condemnation. And while the law certainly condemns us, those who trust in Jesus have escaped that condemnation because Jesus allowed himself to be condemned for us. And the Lord is able to deliver us from every accusation. And so we don't have to worry about the accuser anymore because we have a savior 
who has promised to deliver us. Now, I realize that it's easy to start doubting this truth. You know, we find ourselves in the middle of temptation. We start feeling like we're under condemnation. We find out someone's accusing us of something. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, well, why isn't he delivering us? Why, why is our Savior withholding this promise of deliverance? And we can, we can begin to doubt and we can, can begin to question whether he's going to fulfill the promise to deliver us. And I encourage you to, to realize that he has promised deliverance and he always delivers on his promises. And with that, I, that I want to conclude our study by reminding you of the promise that David presented. It's in the 18th Psalm where David declares, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, in whom I will trust. King David had no doubt that the Lord was not only his rock and his fortress, but his deliverer. And we can walk by the same faith. Jesus is our deliverer, and in him we can trust. The Lord is the only deliverer who is able to perfectly deliver on every promise. And with that being the case, we can trust in every promise made by our divine deliverer. Let's pray.